my name is Ryan Schreckengast, and I am one of the preachers here at GFC. And I want to ask you this morning if it ever feels to you like things are simply out of control. Maybe you watch the news for an average of 30 seconds, uh, and then you feel this way about politics. Or maybe you have kids, and it seems like you say the same thing to them over and over and over, but nothing ever changes. Maybe you've graduated from college, but no matter what, something always seems to prevent you from getting the job that you desire in your heart. Or maybe you have that job, but no matter how hard you work, things never seem to go right. You just can't get a break. Everything is out of control. And what do you think when this sense of the world being out of control just overwhelms you? Do you wonder maybe what God is doing? Or do you despair that things could ever be back under control again? And do you maybe just entertain the idea that what the world really needs to get back under control is maybe for you to take charge? (laughs) Maybe not. (laughs) Maybe things at least in your own life could get back under control if your voice was heard a little bit more clearly. If only things would go your way and everyone would get on board with what you want to happen. Well, friends, let me assure you that I have felt that way. And I've not only believed this to be true, but I've acted on it. And let me likewise assure you that this is in fact A lie. We will see this morning in Acts 12 verses 1 through 24. That as truly terrible as things may get. The world is not out of control. It is firmly under the control of almighty God. And things would not get better. If only my voice was heard more clearly. And in fact, it could get a whole lot worse. And that is the truth that we will see this morning. And so our outline is divided into three parts. That even when reality seems dire, friends, God is God. And contrary to popular belief, I am not. So let's start by reading Acts 12, verses 1 through 5. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was the day during, or this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. 
In these beginning verses, we see the reality of a world that is full of prejudice and violence and hate. This is the reality for the early church. Now, we just finished reading in chapter 11 about the amazing work of God within the church. The gospel was spreading out to the furthest reaches of Judea. And the Jewish brothers were overcoming their own prejudice of the Gentile believers and welcoming them into the body. And even in the face of a famine, those Gentile converts were supporting the needs of the church who was back in Jerusalem. And this is even the time when we get this first identification where the, the people were called Christ followers or Christians. But in spite of all of that, the reality that these Christians are facing is not all cupcakes and rainbows. That same seeds of prejudice that God has been working to remove from within his church are flourishing elsewhere. And those seeds are in fact bearing fruit here in chapter 12. So in verses 1 and 2, the reality that is being faced by this early church is that the ruler of Judea, Herod, is laying violent hands on members of this new Christian movement. And he is killing their leadership one by one by, with the sword. And why does he do this? It says in verse 3 that he saw that it pleased the Jews. And so he captures another Christian leader, Peter. And that's the fundamental motivation for this violence and death is that it pleased the people. This is sort of like the, the kid that you may have grown up with that you always ended up doing stupid things with. <laughs> Somehow you would mutually decide that it was a good idea to throw cherries off of your roof at passing vehicles and try to hit them on the windshield. Maybe that was just me. <laughs> or the, the kid that you thought this would be a good idea to take a bucket and fill it with water and glue and dump it on the head of the neighbor girl. Somehow these things don't seem like bad ideas when you think of them with that particular friend. You talk each other into this stuff. And both of you should know better that this is a bad idea. And you would if you weren't feeding off of each other. And so from one perspective, the Jews, to the Jews, these Christians were a corruption of their religion. They were a threat to the arrangement that they had with Rome for this semi-autonomous rule. They convinced themselves that these Christians are the bad guys. Now, before we are tempted to get too self-righteous here, let me turn the lens around. Let me ask you, how do you feel when you see your enemies being taken out? Are you pleased? Who are you convinced is a threat to your own peace, your own fragile norms that you've established? And would you be grateful if those threats were removed? 
Because that's the nature of the prejudice here that we've been talking about for weeks. It's a collective decision to approve of this sort of treatment because it's believed that the group in question somehow deserves it. So be honest with yourself and with God because we have this temptation to surround ourselves with people that will agree with our perspective. And we'll, we'll stir ourselves up into a frenzy and shout down any opposing ideas. Because as humans, we put ourselves and our supporters firmly in the judgment seat that is rightfully only that of God's. So in verse 4, Herod gives the people what they want. They're out for blood. And so he prepares to give it to them. Not just with James, who has already been killed, but now here in verse tw- or chapter 12 with Peter. Peter is arrested, and he's put under guard, and he's being prepared to be turned over to the people, presumably for execution, as soon as this feast is over. This is the reality of the early church. Violence execution, loss of leadership. So how do they deal with that reality? Well, we see in verse 5, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That's the response. And this response isn't naive, and it isn't a last resort when all other methods have failed them. This is a powerful recognition of the deeper reality than that of violence and death. Prayer to God by the church literally has the power to break chains. Which we're going to see in this next section. Because friends, even more significant than our earthly realities, no matter how terrible they may be is the reality that God is in control. So let's read verses 6 through 17, and we'll see that salvation can be made real because God is God. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains... And centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened before them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street 
And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to, came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. These verses show us this morning the complete control that God has over this situation. God is fully in control and fully capable of saving his people in any way that he sees fit. And I think that it's interesting uh, this morning to, to explore a little bit how God does see fit to save Peter in these verses. Because remember that this is not actually the first time that an angel of the Lord has freed the apostles from prison. Uh, in Acts 5, verses 17 through 21, we read about a similar miraculous prison break. But the details are interestingly different. First off, all of the guards have been doubled <laughs> in this story. And Peter has now been put in chains to sleep literally in between two guards. Possibly, Herod remembers the escape from earlier... And so he has taken precautions to prevent an embarrassing repeat of that situation. But the chains in verse 7 don't even slow the angel down. He says to Peter in verse 8, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. This message would sound familiar to a Jewish audience especially with the context from verse 3 that we were given, that this whole drama is happening at night on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that is Passover. And this would ring a lot of bells to a Jewish audience. So, so for us to understand that context, I want you to read with me Exodus 12, verses 11 through 12. And this is where God is going to instruct the Israelites how to prepare for their coming salvation from their bondage in Egypt. Those verses say this, In this manner you shall eat it, that's the unleavened bread, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover 
For I shall pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So Peter, we see here, is likewise loosed from the chains that are binding him. He is gathering his cloak about him. He is putting on his sandals and he is walking through the city to his freedom. And Peter then realizes that this is not merely a vision of salvation, but he's living the reality of that salvation himself. So in verse 11, he is sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued him from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Because, friends, God is God. He is the Lord. The ultimate reality is that he is fully in control. That is what Passover was meant to be a celebration of. Of God's sovereignty. Of his authority to overrule the earthly realities of slavery and imprisonment and death. Friends, that is the gospel. That is the good news that God has the authority to overrule the realities of our sin by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be the final Passover lamb. To die in our place. And to free us from the prison of our sin. Friends, Jesus Christ has the authority through his blood to make full atonement through his sacrificial death. But the Jews, the people, were so pleased by their own self-righteous persecution of these Christ followers that they missed it. Like Pharaoh, their hearts were hard. And they were so caught up in the anticipation of blood that so many of them failed to recognize the salvation of God that is before them. And so because of that hard-heartedness, Peter goes, when he is freed from prison, not to preach again in the temple like the apostles did the last time they were freed in Acts 5, but he goes instead to the new family of God in verse 12. The church who were humbled in prayer to God. And there he's met by Rhoda, a servant girl. And in her childlike faith, it says in verse 14, that she doesn't even need to open the door. She doesn't even need to see Peter. But she believes that he has been freed and she runs joyfully to the disciples on no evidence other than his voice. What a beautiful commendation for the faith of a child. That Jesus says in Luke 18 is the kind of faith that will receive the kingdom of God. 
And we know that the disciples had faith too. Although they didn't imagine the type of salvation that God would possibly accomplish. But they had enough faith to pray earnestly and specifically for Peter, it says in verse 5. So we don't know exactly what it was that they were praying for. Maybe they were praying for his endurance through what they thought would come in the morning. Maybe they were praying for the courage to speak boldly of Christ at his execution like Stephen. Or maybe they were praying for the peace of God to be on him in his ordeal that night in the prison. Or maybe they were praying for a more conventional release of him from prison. Or maybe even something miraculous. But whatever it was that they were praying, we know that they were taken aback by how incredibly God saves. And that, friends, is why Peter went to speak to them at all. To tell them how God had saved him. See, he doesn't even stay there or ask them to do anything. In verse 17, he only says, tell James and the other brothers what God did to free me. Tell them. Witness to them the awesome salvation of God. Please just make them know that God is God. That is the reality. That he is in control. No chain, no prison, no guard, no king or government has the slightest power to oppose him. So he gives them that message and then he departs for somewhere else. So how does this apply to us this morning, friends? Understand that the reality is God is God. I don't know all of the things that you face that make you feel like this world is out of control. Maybe the reality of the pandemic still looms large in your mind. Maybe the stress of the relationships that are caused by varying viewpoints of that pandemic feel far beyond your control. Maybe you face prejudices of other kinds for your skin color, for any trait that is beyond your personal control. Maybe you feel like a failure in whatever you're in. And so your self-hatred is a battle that feels like it's going to overwhelm you. Or maybe your own body has failed. And so you and, and no one else feels like they can give you the answers or hope for ever having improvement in your physical body. Friends, in all of these situations... Let me promise you that God is God. He is fully in control and salvation is his to accomplish. He can make a way where there is no way. And if you know that, 
If you truly understand that God is God, then tell people. Be witnesses of it. How? By telling people those things that God has done. How he has freed you. How he has transformed you. For me, one of the ways that God has done this is he has lifted me out of fear. Again and again, God has freed me from fear. He has taken that spirit of fear from me and replaced it with his spirit of power and love and a sound mind. That's one way he's freed me. How has he freed you? Please find someone this week and tell them about it. Talk about it today in small groups. Share with each other the ways that God has saved you. Because we need to be reminded of this. We need Peters who keep knocking on the door and don't go away until we believe the truth. Because the reality is that God is God. And we must be the voice that proclaims this because we're not the only voice that is shouting. There is another voice shouting, not that God is God, but that you are God, that I am God, that mankind, we are God. And friends, that voice is very loud sometimes and very sweet, but it's lying. And the proof of that lie is demonstrated in this final section, verses 18 through 24. Read it with me and see this last reality that God has never been, will never be, and is not man. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now, excuse me. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. 
from these verses, we see what happens when man puts himself on the rightful throne of God. Absolute, unavoidable, and frankly, horrifying death. The first death that we see here is in verse 19, when Herod executes the guards who failed to imprison Peter. The thing he was probably afraid of, this embarrassment has taken place. He has lost face before the people and the ones who were supposed to have prevented it need to pay the price. They need to be made an example of. And I think that in this too, we see Herod's willingness to act as God, as the arbiter of life and death. So having been embarrassed and having meted out his punishment in Jerusalem, he goes north to the border to vent his frustrations on the neighboring country. The chief cities of this country were Tyre and Sidon. So for Herod, this would have been a much more comfortable situation because we learn from verse 20 that Herod has all of the political power in this situation. This country depends on his country for food. And so Herod has the opportunity to bask in his power that he wields over these people who are completely dependent on him. And we see again the mindset of Herod, this desire to rule and dominate and to obtain adoration from the people that he has authority over. Whether those are Jews or whether those are Canaanites doesn't really matter to him. He'll take all of it. And you do have to give Herod his due. Because he seems to know how to work a crowd. (laughs) In verse 22, the people respond to his speech, whatever that speech is, we don't know. As if they were hearing the voice of a God. Maybe they were just flattering him. He had all the power. (laughs) But we do know that Herod agrees with them. Yes, his voice is the voice of a God, not of a man. He accepts the adoration and that divine label as merely his right. Because after all, he is basically a God to these people and not merely a man. He controls everything about them. Except he's not. He's not a God. And so immediately in verse 23, an angel of the Lord struck him down. He was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. Now, there are many conjectures among scholars about how exactly this may have taken place. And these ideas make for some very interesting, if extremely gruesome reading. But I think that the point that is being communicated here is very clear. The reality is that God is God and man is not. No matter what the masses scream, the voice of Herod is merely that of a man, not God. 
And not only that, but this was a man who has laid violent hands on some who belong to the church. Who has killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Who has seized and imprisoned Peter. Who has ordered his own sentries to be executed for their failure to protect him. And who has set himself against the true God. And friends, this man is less than powerless to stop the true God. And to stop the word of God from increasing and multiplying, as it says in verse 24. Herod is brought low and his word is destroyed and the word of God is lifted up and advances. Because that man is not God. He does not have the power of God. And if he dares to believe the lie that he is God, then he will face the true judgment of the real God. Because no will but the Father's will ultimately be done. So we ask, what does the fate of Herod mean for Theophilus who would have originally received this letter from Luke? Well, Herod's fate should give Theophilus pause. Because he was another Roman official overseeing the treatment of another Christian prisoner, Paul. And so it matters to him what happens to Herod. And friends, it should matter to us. It should cause us here this morning pause as well. Because how do we apply this this morning? Do not believe the lie that you are God. When I say it that way, of course, (laughs) we all know that we're not God. However, when the crowds tell you that no one but you has the right to decide what is right and wrong in your own life. It's easy to believe that you should follow your heart and do what makes you happy. That you deserve to be with this person that makes you feel happy regardless of what promises you may have made. That your body is your own and that no unborn life could possibly make a claim on it. That the political party of your choice is fully righteous and the other one, whatever it may be, is nothing but evil. That your voice should be heard above all others and any dissenters should be silenced. Because after all, yours is the voice of a God and not merely a man. Friends, no matter how loudly or how persistently or how convincingly the world tells you these things, do not believe them because they are simply not true. God is God and man is not. So what do you risk if you do believe these lies? Well, you risk believing 
that you have no need for any God other than yourself. That your own righteousness is from you. And that you are the arbiter of your own life and destiny. That you have no need for God to send you some other salvation. But friends, the truth is that that will leave you alone to face the righteous judgment of the true God. And you will find yourself fatally insufficient and faced with an eternal death, even worse than that described for Herod. So please, this morning, through these passages, recognize the true reality that even when things seem out of control, that God is God. And you and I are not. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you are God. In all things, God, may we recognize that. May we put you on the throne in our lives. God, help us to tune out the voices that are claiming otherwise. God, help us to speak boldly of the truths to one another of your incredible salvation. God, that we could share with one another and we could could encourage each other to see how you are at work. Because, Lord, you are at work. You are God. And in the face of all of the chaos, you are God. And you have always been God. So, Lord, help me this morning to make you Lord in my life, to enthrone you powerfully in everything that I do. Not to take control for myself, but to give you control, God. And, Lord, I pray for those here this morning and on Zoom that they would do the same. Because, Lord, you are God and you are worthy of our praise. Amen.